electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on Squawk Pod, Walter Isaacson, the biographer on his subject, Elon Musk, as the world's richest man heads to court to get out of buying Twitter. I think that he will make a engineering decision, uh, but you're right, he's not the easiest person to get to settle. And get back to work. You learn things by being around other people. You get mentored. You need that stimulus that comes, and it's good for our society. Although, for millions of Americans heading back to the office, it's a bargaining chip. What started as emergency measures because of a global pandemic suddenly becomes an expectation for workers. Inflation in America, still too hot for the markets. J.P. Morgan strategist Mira Pandit. Even if we did get cooler inflation, which we didn't, we still haven't seen that sustained trend of disinflation. And much more on this return to office week of September. It's Tuesday the 13th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you by in three, two, one, kill three. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And so far... First up today, before anything else, August inflation data. Economists had been expecting headline inflation to fall one-tenth of a percent from last month, which would have meant two straight months without an inflation rise. But that wasn't what happened. The monthly reading of the Consumer Price Index, CPI, which tracks a broad swath of consumer goods and services, increased one-tenth of a percent for the month, and 8.3% year over year. Up 8.3 on year over year, up 8.3. Markets slumped on the news, falling as much as 500 points before the Tuesday open. And the inflation picture itself is cloudy. Gasoline prices, after a breathless run-up earlier this summer, have pulled back. But food, shelter, and various costs of living continue to climb. Becky Quick talked to J.P. Morgan's Mira Pandit, former CEA chairman Tyler Goodspeed, and CNBC's own in-house economist, Steve Leisman, about the numbers. Mira reacted first. Look, it puts pressure on the Fed to continue to, to hike pretty aggressively. We expected 75 coming into this meeting, regardless of the inflation print, though, because even if we did get cooler inflation, which we didn't, we still haven't seen that sustained trend of disinflation. So we're going to continue to watch out to see if we do see that. Moreover, we're still seeing that labor markets are tight and, and wage growth is solid. And above all, you know, if we see that the Fed happens to have gone 50 basis points, we would have been in the same exact position we were this summer, where all of a sudden the markets are pricing in a Fed pivot that the Fed is not ready to deliver. So I think at least it keeps us in line with that 75 basis point hike we're likely to see later this month. Hey, Tyler, can I just ask uh, about the wage increases in particular? Um, Looking at some of these numbers, the railroads negotiating for a 14% pay increase that, that they would like to see 
more than that, I guess, on some other areas. Hard Rock Cafe raising um, what they're going to be paying their workers. We've talked about California and the fast food law that's going to go in there requiring $22 an hour for fast food workers. I think the big question becomes what happens to, to wage inflation, because that's what always worries people about the, the you know, the wage inflationary pressures. Tyler, what, what are, you, are you concerned about that or is that something we still need to see more than just a few anecdotal situations? Well, I think that's a good question. And certainly when we look over the past year and a half, a big challenge for labor has been that wages have not been keeping pace with inflation. And for most of 2021 okay. into 2022, while that was true for the average wage, the average real wage. It was not true for wages in the aggregate, for the economy as a whole. But that has changed in the past six months. And indeed, for, for two of the past three months, we've actually had the aggregate wage bill in the economy not keep pace with inflation. And so I think that there's going to be a lot more pressure coming from labor for, for wage hikes just to, to get even with the inflationary pressure that we've seen over the past year and a half. And look, when I look at unit labor costs, when I look at the core measure of CPI, when I look at these alternative measures of core or underlying inflation, trimmed mean, weighted median, underlying inflation gauge, those to me all seem consistent with a pretty, pretty sustainable uh, 6% core rate of, of, of CPI growth. And that's not 2%. Steve? Long way from it. Yeah, let me just tell you what's happening in the Fed funds market. This is pretty big right here. Well, I don't know how big, but Right now, there's an 80% chance of a 75 basis point hike, but it's also trading. The rest of that is not 50. The rest of that, if my math is correct, there's a 20% chance of a 100 basis point hike. I am seeing the April 2023 contract now trade with a peak rate for the Federal, for the Federal Reserve of 420. And I'm not joking about that wow. number. It is 4.20 right now, uh, according to the latest data I have. Uh, 407 by year end, which is kind of incorporating a little bit more aggressively than had been out there. I don't think that's right for the next meeting, but I have long argued that everybody's too concerned with the steps and not with the destination. The destination here, I think, has always been in the 4% range. What the market is now saying is the Fed needs to go further. So what, what's happening right now is the market has piled on not just a neutral rate, not just a restrictive rate, but additional restriction in the rate there at 420. And it all depends on the great debate. What's your underlying inflation number to find your right Fed number or, or Fed policy rate? A story that we've been following for a couple of days now and the latest on what could be the first nationwide rail stri railroad strike since 1991. There was a CSS strike in 1992. The last time there was a nationwide strike was 1991. All of this is coming um, with a deadline approaching Friday. It could bring huge swaths of the U.S. supply chain to a halt and it could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. The White House is stepping in and urging railroads and unions to reach a deal. If workers vote for a strike, Congress would likely intervene to block it. Then they could vote to fast track a new contract. The railroads, the retailers, uh, growers and other industries are largely urging lawmakers to simply implement the term terms that were laid out by the Presidential Emergency Board. It released those recommendations last month to try and bring both sides to a deal. This is incredibly um, concerning for the economy to see what's happening. Some of the railroads have already been saying that they are stopping shipments of hazardous cargo and sensitive materials, things that are like chemicals that are important for manufacturing, for agriculture, 
um, even for the pharmaceutical business as well. Um, the last time there was a nationwide strike was 1991. Congress passed a, 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 a push through a bill stopping it a day later. George H.W. Bush signed it immediately. 1992, there was a CSF strike. The same thing happened. They, uh, two days later, Congress ended that strike. The White House panel came out and recommended wage increases of 24 percent between 2020 and 2025. A 14% hike immediately and five annual payments of $1,000, two of them retroactively. That's been on the table to this point. I think the pushing point has been that some of these unions would like to have more paid time off um, for sickness and for wellness checks um, to see that coming through. What we worry about in a real tight labor market and its, right. its impact on inflation. And, and this would be a double whammy because you'd have wages theoretically going chain. up and the supply chain. Well, so. that's I, look, the. The president has been monitoring this closely for a month. It's kind of shocking that 10 of the unions have already settled and have, have agreed to terms. There are two left, and they represent 66,000 workers, but it is getting down to that day. The railroads have already started initiating this where they're not sending some shipments saying they don't want these hazardous cargoes to get stuck on the rails. The union pushes back and says that they are kind of holding them hostage to, to th with these threats of what will for happen. For a Democrat, it's a tough position for the administration as well, because you want, you want wage gains, especially and they've been for, supportive of for union backers, yeah. but then you don't really want to be presiding over that this hot inflation down. numbers. So. By the way, Amtrak today is going to stop some of its longer um, passenger routes because Amtrak only controls the rails between Boston and Washington. Everything else they use is controlled by these other railroad companies. And so they're not going to have, I think starting today, they'll end three of their longer distance journeys um, and hold off while they await these things to come through. Well, remember the golden age of the rails, really, never went away. I mean, it goes all the way back to that late 19th century, but it's still, it, is it not the best way to go between here and, and D.C.? I, you, you fly once in a while, I guess. I, love I like the, to fly. You do. You get stuck I, I in don't. weather. That's I don't. Like, I have. You know, I've, gotten stuck in, I've, I've gotten stuck and watched my plane take off, right. stuck in traffic trying to get there. I've sat on the runway with I weather. I don't know. It, with the Amtrak, you get the, you know, you get bison chili. <laughs> you know what I mean? You get the, they, they try a bunch of seafood. I love when they do that. Nothing yeah. like clams on Amtrak. You know what I mean? Now to the return to the office push at many companies across the country. Among those firms, the New York Times and NBC News. But the Wall Street Journal reports that some union members at the Times and at NBC News's digital properties have decided to push back and continue to work remotely despite management calls to return this week. The Times union says that it has nearly 1,300 signatures for members pledging to stay home. The paper's three unions have about 2,000 members in total. In the meantime, the head of NBC News' digital newsroom union says about 100, or 215 members are vowing to remain remote. That union represents about 275 people. Spokesmen for both the New York Times and NBC News say that the companies remain committed to flexible and hybrid workplaces, but I guess this is where you get to the point where what started as emergency measures right. because of, of, of a global pandemic right. suddenly becomes an expectation for workers, right. too. The idea that you have to negotiate with me in order for me to come back right. into the office. And I think that's what companies have been worried about, and now you're seeing it actually take place. I, I'm a dinosaur. I admit it. I, I'm flabbergasted. It's like, okay, we had this horrible pandemic, so people had to stay home. But when it's over... You come back. It's I don't. It's, it's just strange, I don't it's get a it. It's expectation. I understand the desire for flexibility, well, but I don't understand when your boss tells you to come in and you say no. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like you let me do this, and and you know you should have never let me do it.
because now I'm not coming back. It's I think it's crazy. It's interesting times. I think it's it's emblematic of the shift that we're seeing right now in the in the negotiations. Really, yeah. just one lines. one note on this. Mm-hmm. A number of these union contracts yeah. are, are, are up right are, now, are open. and they're being right. They're being. So negotiated. this is not. Right. So just just just, be, just, just to be hundred percent clear, it's. I don't believe this is just employees saying, right. I, I don't want to go to work. So it's some bargaining. It's thing. we have been working for years without a contract. We want a contract. This is now one other negotiating piece of leverage we have. But I think in that, that I think the question becomes, where's the beginning of that negotiation? With the default being that you're home, or the default being that you're in the workplace? And oh, I think it's still just get us a con. And for most, for most, I, most of the most of these folks, I think it's just get a contract. You know who gets to stay home? All these hundreds of people at Goldman Sachs. Awesome. Oh, we're getting off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to stay that- home? Good. Enjoy. Story. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It, it it's just emblematic of the, the the discussions that are taking place at work at workplaces everywhere. Look, I spend three hours with my nose to the grindstone, so I can talk about this. Okay, talk about twelve-hour days. You might want to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, I might want to shut up. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Twitter's whistleblower. Today's testimony about possible security lapses could shape the social media platform's fate and Elon Musk's fate with it. But what exactly is Elon's endgame? Musk biographer Walter Isaacson. I think that he's always of mixed minds, as most of us are. And there are times he wakes up in the morning and thinks of all the things he could do with Twitter. He could, if he wanted, try to turn Twitter into a payments platform, into a content micropayment platform. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two, one, Q Ander. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Should we talk Twitter? We'll get to yes. Twitter. Twitter blue. Twitter blue. Twitter blue, that's right. Uh, corporate news this morning. Uh, Twitter shareholders looking ready to approve Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover of the company. Musk is, of course, in the process of trying to get out of that deal. Reports showing that early votes suggest Twitter investors will approve the transaction, as you might imagine, by a very wide margin. What else would they do? Uh, Musk owns a roughly 10% stake of Twitter, and he's not expected to vote his shares. Meantime, in Washington today, uh, Twitter's former head of security, 
Uh, Peter Zacco is going to be testifying before a Senate committee about his whistleblower complaint against the company. Musk, of course, now trying to use those allegations uh, in his legal fight to get that takeover offer dropped. Doesn't seem to be the case. So what happens if they approve the, the deal, as you would widely anticipate and expect? Right. October Nothing. 17th is the date for the trial that then goes forward. These things are moving on separate They tracks. happen anyway. Yeah. Yes. October I mean, I guess if they didn't trial. approve the deal, then you would then need to nothing. have a trial. But right. sure, yes, the trial will October happen. October 17th is the Delaware trial. and that's I think we should all move the show down there for a week. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. It's going to be riveting. Yeah. So I actually, I don't want to say that actually. I'm not actually sure it's going to be riveting, to be honest with you. I think most of the riveting, anything that's riveting is probably already going to be filed in the pre-motion papers. And I will bet money that the judge already has a clerk working on the decision in advance. There's an element to, the, to theater, probably, to some of it. Because they know so much already. How, yeah. how long do you think it actually takes for a week. to come up with the decision? So she already said a week. Oh, a week? oh, no, no. For the for the decision after the. Oh, well, I think there's two ways she could do it. There, there are times where when this judge will rule from the bench. So it, literally, the trial could end, and she could say, "This is my decision," and then she could effectively file a longer written decision, or she could probably pull it off in, I don't know, three or four weeks. I mean, that's what I said. In most cases, you probably have the clerks already writing elements of the decision, even in advance, so you have, like, stuff ready to go. Um, and she seems to be very gung-ho on getting it done quickly. Um, well, in a way, said that the well, time matters. Yes, and by, but there's other people who say, well, does time really matter? I mean, it's, it's a very interesting sort of question. Twitter, Twitter says time matters. Time matters if you're a shareholder of Twitter, but in the grand scheme of the universe, does time really matter? So, but she's decided time really matters. So that's where we are. Time really go backwards. That's, if you're talking about universe type questions, that's a much bigger I, question I, than I whether ha, it I, had, I hadn't gotten there. Does it fold around but, on itself? Is there a time-space the, continuum? The other part Did of the Iger time. Did really say there's too many bots? The, the time-space continuum I, going forward and going backwards. Iger oh. said he didn't want it because there were too many bots. Did you see that? I Did he really that. say that? He, he really said that. I don't think that was really why he didn't want to buy it. He said he didn't want it because he didn't want to take the mental bandwidth. I know, bandwidth but did he really so say, wow, there's a lot of buy It just seems like, I don't know, that plays it. Can, can he be deposed? <laughs> can, no? I, I mean, I guess he could be. But um, I think the bigger issue is not this. I mean, how quickly she comes down with the decision is one thing. It's not over, though, when she comes down with the decision, because invariably then he's going to challenged. appeal. Yeah. And then he's going to go to the Delaware... Uh, but the, then they the decide Doris, whether they Delaware rule Supreme on it Court. or not, right? Yeah, but that could take a little bit of time. And they, they act pretty fast. And then the question... The, but the other question is, does he somehow turn this into some kind of federal case? We've talked about this before. If he can manage to turn this into a federal case, leveraging the whistleblower in some way, then maybe, you know, you could string this out for a long, long time. Yeah, I don't think we want to go to Delaware. We like, we like viewers, right? <laughs> Joining us right now with more about what this could mean for Elon Musk as he continues to try and back out of his deal with Twitter is Musk biographer Walter Isaacson. 
of course is a professor at Tulane University, a partner at Perella Weinberg and a CNBC contributor, and he happens to be working on a biography of Elon Musk at the moment, so he knows the man quite well. Uh, Walter, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you. It's great to be back on set with you. It's great to have you on set. There are so many things that are coming to a head with this Twitter deal. You've got the whistleblower going today. You have Twitter shareholders voting on whether to uh, approve that deal, which mm-hmm. is pretty much a given. They're going to want the they money. They vote, yes. Um, what does this mean, the, the whistleblower? How does that change things? It's a well, it certainly chat. means that if it goes to trial, the trial is a lot more exciting, which is not a good thing, maybe for either side, but particularly not for Twitter, meaning if you're going to be able to depose everybody, even though what this whistleblower has said isn't all that relevant to all the complaints that Musk made about Twitter, if you're going to have a trial where all the dirty linen and all the clean linen is aired in public, this is bad. So it puts up more pressure for a settlement. I assume that that's a possibility. I know there are a lot of people sort of floating around trying to promote settlements. Uh, these are not people who, uh, it's not like the Colgate Palmolive person talking to Walmart and saying, hey, we can settle because there's a lot more emotion to this one. But yeah, I think there's a possibility that uh, this case won't go to trial. Well, let, let me ask you that because I think there have been a lot of people who thought Elon Musk would never agree to a settlement because when he thinks he's right, he's going to fight to the bitter end on something. Yeah, that's not the sense you get? I get the sense that he is a very smart, understands his interests has good lawyers and good bankers, and uh, I think that he will make a engineering decision. Uh, but you're right, he's not the easiest person to get to settle. Uh, and uh, I do think that he's offended by some of the things he's found out about Twitter. So we'll just have to see if there's a way to settle. To me, there's such a large delta Right. Between what? 54 and. Well, between what? At, oh, call it 40, 54, but I was going to say $44 billion right. deal. If you are a Twitter shareholder, you, you believe that you're entitled to the full $44 billion. Correct. I think that Elon thinks. That he agreed to. That he agreed to. I imagine Elon thinks that maybe they're entitled to a billion dollars, walk away, and that's it, if, if that. And so it's somewhere in between there that we're talking about. I imagine if you're a Twitter uh, board, you think to yourself, you know what? If, unless you're going to get me within, you know, two or three billion dollars of that, why don't you know let it ride? Because the chances are, I think most most legal experts think that it's it's in Twitter's interest ultimately. There may be bad, you know, laundry will come out during the trial, but that that from a winning losing perspective, Twitter has in this case the better hand. No. I think Twitter has a better legal hand with this judge in Delaware who right. seems to say that. So, yes. And uh, it's got a lot of downsides. And if you're a member of the Twitter board, your first thought should be, how do I get off this board? Your <laughs> second thought is, where could we settle that's not going to create the most possible shareholder lawsuits? I mean, we're sitting here. You can look up and down the street. This happens. You'll see people running out of these buildings who are lawyers uh, filing class action suits because this is a full employment act for lawyers, whatever they do when they settle. So it's not an easy settlement to see, but it's in both... I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things in life. It's in both sides' interest, really, to find a price where you don't go to trial and have all the depositions and discovery. But isn't this just a, isn't this just a time value of money story? Because the truth is, I think that most of those directors on Twitter's board don't really care about the class action lawsuits. They all have DNO insurance, directors and, and officers right. insurance. They're covered. Nobody's arguing that they haven't uh, fulfilled their fiduciary duty. 
I mean, well, you, that would seem it, to me to be the most important part. But I, I, I don't think anyone's going to look at them in that in that way. So, I and they want to sell. I mean, and most of like the to, people on that like board sell, don't have large. They would like to sell you know, at 44, in, 44 billion. Though. Right, right. Of course they would. So yeah, they could let it ride and let's see what the judge decides. And if the judge says, "Man, you got to pay judge the exact seems amount," very. Um, predisposed to... And then you get into something I'm not going to be able to give you the answer to because I'll just toss it out, which is I don't know what happens if the judge says, yes, you have to go through with it. I mean, what do they do, you know, if he doesn't want to do it? And he could... Uh, make it difficult. And if he does... But I think... Is he planning on that? No. I think that... Personally, I think that he's always of mixed minds, as most of us are. And there are times he wakes up in the morning and thinks of all the things he could do with Twitter and how great it could be, how exciting it would be. He, as a young person, helped create um, PayPal, as you know. And when Peter Thiel and others came in and there was a coup and he lost PayPal, he was trying to make PayPal into the great financial services bank that would do all your transactional needs. He could, if he wanted, try to turn Twitter into a payments platform, into a content micropayment platform, into a way in which you store money. And I think he dreams of or has good visions of what he would do to fulfill what he had thought about as a kid by taking Twitter and, and I, doing that. Walter, I bet he doesn't wake up too many mornings and think, wow, I'm really excited about being deposed again today and having these lawyers be able to drag me through uh, all he, of these yeah, things. I, I've, never seen him, um, I've never seen him enthusiastic or happy about upcoming depositions. Right, I mean, and he's it, gone through them a he's lot. He's got all whether the money in the world, but City. these yeah. lawyers now have access to his time and control over him. That must, I, I mean, I just can't imagine being He is very future. good. We were talking off air. But late last night, he's working on Raptor engines and, and the exact valves he would use. Because as you've noticed, valves are a problem on rocket engines, as we've seen in the past month or two. He was working on exactly how you do the booster. He's able to sequentially focus in a way that I almost find, you know, it's like he's half Vulcan or something out of, you know, he and Dr. Spock, because, you know, he doesn't wake up in the morning, this morning, because I've, you know, been in contact. He's not waking up worrying about depositions. He's worrying about valves in the new engine for the Starship. That's why I just think, see this being a hassle, but... Um the whistleblower, how does this potentially change things? Because even if they do reach a settlement, that's not going to stop the whistleblower from saying anything and everything. So, you know, well, it Twitter's does devalue the company it. a bit, and it does show there's a whole lot more that could come out. So, uh, I think, yeah, I think the whistleblower doesn't help Twitter at all, and it also doesn't help the current management of Twitter. We need to, to stay on this, but I, I just, as an aside, I think of the people that you've, you've written about, and, and you know, Steve Jobs, Einstein, Ben Franklin, Da Vinci, and just listening to you off camera about Elon. I mean, there's, are there similarities? Are there, are there, do some of them have really good points? Or, or do some of them have really bad points? What, what have you learned? Because well, you know, you, they're all human, which is a good thing about a biographer, even though I joke about them being half Vulcan. Yeah. So they have good points they, and bad points. Are they all on the spectrum? I mean, is yes. that part? That is an interesting, perhaps longer conversation. But that ability to not be as emotionally, empathetically engaged in order to see the vision through. It's something Steve Jobs had. It's something Bill Gates, as you know quite well, has. It's something a lot of these people have because they're not looking 
for affection from the person sitting across from them, they're looking to get rockets to Mars. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, is it harder to do biography, biographies of live people or dead people? I mean, I did Henry Kissinger 100 years ago when I was a kid right here in uh, this section of Manhattan working. And uh, I said, man, after doing Dr. Kissinger, who actually it was an interesting topic, so I'm going to do somebody who's been dead for 200 years. So I did Ben Franklin. <laughs> and finally, I did somebody live again, Steve Jobs. I said, okay, now it's got to be somebody dead for 500 years. And I did Leonardo da Vinci. I think after doing Elon Musk, I might go back at least to Aristotle. So <laughs> back to dead Steve, people. Steve Jobs would tell you how he felt. Does, is Elon similar in that regard? Yeah, Elon is, uh, Musk is very similar in being extraordinarily open. How he feels not only about you know, business matters or whatever. But, you know, he has a comp more complex life than, let us say, I have. And he is transparent. And that transparency is part of his genius. It's, uh, it's what his Weird. willingness to be so open and transparent, I think, uh, makes and him he might do it. I, I really think he might do it for chips. I'm not sure it's about money. I, I think he might do it for just to keep track with, with chips. I don't you mean uh, in terms of all these companies? In terms of if just you being, were doing work, from, being the richest man in the world and not really giving a shit. If you were trying to make as much money as possible, you would not start a rocket chip company. That's what I mean. Mars. I don't think it has anything no, to do he's with not, money. It has not, can not, I ask a different oh. question about this, which relates to this idea that he, this, this sort of spectrum idea and this idea that he's sort of this unemotional person who doesn't care what people think of him? I don't believe that for a second. I believe this is someone who cares deeply what people think of him. Uh, when you and look, the collective people, but maybe not the. Maybe well, not. but no, but this is to me. This is the this is the interesting element of it, right? But I think you look at the way he feels about President Biden, not uh, not not either he treating him. He is very annoyed uh, that President uh, Biden believes said that General Motors and Mary Barrett right? is leading the He's, way. Someone into like the this is not future, going on Saturday Night Live. Because they don't, don't care what people think of them. Uh, and he not desperately wants to be loved and beloved. Right. Especially by humanity, if not yeah. necessarily the humans, right? In you, want be, you want to be loved by your no, wife and don't, don't give a crap. Well, I don't care about the, the collective. But you're right. Care about he cares about family. his reputation. He cares about the fact that Biden has ridiculously dissed him on electric cars. Right. But if he's sitting in front of four or five people who have messed up getting the booster of Starship oh, sure. Right. Okay. He totally. says, if I'm starting to feel empathy with these three or four people instead of moving them out, <laughs> then that's a misplaced empathy. My empathy has to be with the enterprise of getting right. the rocket to Mars, oh, that's fair. not okay. with the person in front of me. All right, let, let's shift the conversation, um, just because I'm told that you have some pretty strong thoughts about back to work, or you have some thoughts about it. I walked in and they said, we, yeah. I said yeah. Well, we've been, we've been talking around the table this morning, and for weeks this has been a national conversation, if not for months. Um, I, I, we kicked it off this morning just with the news that unions at the New York Times and at NBC Digital Properties have basically said, no, we're not coming back even though you want us to this week, that this is now part of the negotiation power. Um, you have been, you're a, a Tulane professor, you've run CNN, run organizations, you've, you've seen this from a lot of different sides. What do you think? I, I have no idea what you think. Well, look, first of all, this is America, so every company should be able to say, I'm going to make, I'm going to ask my workers to come back. I'm not going to ask you to come back, and you compete in the marketplace, and some workers will go some places. And it'll be an amazing study, if anybody can do it in 10, 12 years, of what effect did it have when you ask people to come back to work versus you 
uh, attracted talent. Elon Musk is going to push people to come back to work. But I can look out of these windows, and I can walk by as I came here, the Time Life Building, and I can remember when I was like 22 years old, being in the corridors of the Time Life Building, working until about midnight with dozens of people and, you know, grown-ups telling me, here's how you deal with Henry Grunewald, you don't do that, and hey, kid, you're going to get to go travel with the president next week because our White House correspondent. And, here, and you learn things by being around other people. You get mentored. I think it's really bad. I watch young kids in New Orleans who miss a little bit of school, although school came back in New Orleans. Boom, that hurt. They lost, you know, a year for every six months of schooling. Likewise, Tulane came back on campus, and I see the friends of my students who say, man, we weren't back on campus. We lost everything. I think if I were running a company and the things I do, I'd say, get back to work. Come back to the office. This is ridiculous. You need that stimulus that comes, and it's good for our society. Our society is so balkanized right now, so polarized. Well, when I went to work in the corridors, I had to sit there listening to you know, people I disagreed with, and we'd have yelling arguments, but we all sat there and then went down to the bar in the lobby for a drink. When you don't have that type of in-place socialization, Steve Jobs was so fanatic about it. When he built the Pixar headquarters and the Apple, you had to walk through places and bump into other people. I think we got to get back to work. All right. I, I think I'm more in your camp than the, the opposite camp. But I will also say, what about this idea that the commuting has gotten so awful for people to get into the city? You're talking sometimes about two-hour commutes each way. Should there be more flexibility? Should you have more attentive, attentiveness to a work-life balance, particularly because that commute into the city has gotten harder and harder? Well, there's certainly a movement in America today that everybody wants more work-life balance as meaning more life. Uh, And they don't want to commute and they don't want to come in that much. And there's whatever you all call it on this show, quiet resignation. Quiet quitting, yeah. Backing down and yeah. Is that good? Not in my opinion. Now, obviously I'm sympathetic. I used to live up in uh, Yonkers when I worked at Time Magazine. I used to take Metro North. I came on in. Would I have liked not to take Metro North? Maybe, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world for me to get on the train with everybody else. I'm just saying, would you agree to a three-day work week or four-day work week? It depends on what I'm doing. If I were trying to get a rocket to Mars, I wouldn't agree to that. (laughs) If I were trying to put out a magazine that was really good or a newspaper, I wouldn't agree to that. If I were Google and trying to code, uh, you know, do coding for the algorithms for advertising serving, I'd say, yeah, we're going to come in Mondays through Thursdays, or we're going to come in three days a week and have meetings and you work from home on other days. But this is why the American system is so good. There should not be some top-down solution. Good managers should experiment and say, this works best with my team. I got one final question for you because we mentioned CNN. What's your take on what's going on uh, at your former employer? Well, I think that what's happening, what you know, Chris Licht once and others, is more reporting and less yelling of opinion. Is not to just bring it back to the center or whatever. I like being on this show. Why? Because this show, the amount of valued information versus the amount of random pontification is really Wait high. Wait a minute. I gave a lot of ra- <laughs> Really? I, I got to ramp right. it up the, a little. The, 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 uh, all yeah. right. I'll try. Yeah, I'll, the I'll, ratio I'll, is two uh, to one, basically. <laughs> no, I'm I'll try. But I, no, I'm I think that there's a hunger for information you can trust. And when I was working at CNN 
it was during the Gulf War, many things. It was, you know, easy. People really wanted good information. As that ended, it was a better business model just to hire very opinionated people who would get their hair on fire. That's an easier business model to get people to increase their time spent viewing. But a show like this, where you're giving high-value information, gets you more valuable eyeballs, meaning advertisers want them, and it also is something we need in our society, saying, let me just give you reported information more than just my opinion. I'm so glad I asked the question. No, so thank you, Walter. Yeah. Nice promo. I got a little teary there, so we're, we're, we're okay then. You like well, us? Okay. You, you don't you really want like us. Because you all are back at work and you deal with each other. We do. Walter, thank you. Um, always enjoy these conversations, but let us know when you're in New York. We got lucky this time. We'll come Having down to New Orleans yeah. and, and hang, you know. That's not a bad invitation. We'll, we'll take we that invitation. Appreciate that. But we like having you around the table. Thank you for being here. Really good to thank see you. Thank you very much. Right, in person. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the best of Squawk Box, the smartest interviews, and the most thoughtful analysis from our TV show right to your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend to listen too. It's free. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.